turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's always hard to decide what to preach on a night like this when the whole Bible is before you. And you don't want to pick on Alex. You know, we have only one deacon being installed tonight, and so you don't want to put all the focus on him. Or do you want to put all the focus on the deacons in general or all the officers? You want to talk to the whole church. And the best way to encourage and to exhort the church is to look at a book like 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is written by Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy, who's pastoring a church in Ephesus. And Paul is giving instructions as how and what the church ought to look like and how he ought to pastor it. So with that in mind, let's look at 1 Timothy uh, 1, uh, 3 through 17. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so you may command certain men not to teach false doctrine any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this work is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know the law is made not for righteous, but for the lawbreakers and the rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and prejudices, and whatever is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which we, he entrusted to me. I thank Jesus Christ our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful and appointed me as, to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me the worst of sinners Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example of those who believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the God only wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God's word to God's people. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the church. And thank you that it is the bride of Christ and that you love her and that we have been called to be a part and to play a part. I would pray that tonight as we open these scriptures and study them, that you would help us to be a faithful church, one that would preach the gospel and bring honor and glory to you as we serve the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. It's interesting, when you look at the book of 1 Timothy, it covers a wide variety of subjects. As you can imagine, what does a church planner need to know? 
he probably needs to know everything. I've often thought about Timothy in relationship to my own ministry as I started uh, being a pastor at the age of 27. And I can remember that first day or so after Wilson had gone and I was sitting in the office and I began to think, what have I gotten into? Did I realize there are 52 Sundays a year and that many Wednesday nights as well? And I could have been uh, helped by having somebody like Timothy, uh, like Paul, write me a letter. But as you unfold this letter, you realize that what Paul is saying is important. He talks first about church doctrine, to keep it intact and uncorrupted by false teaching. He next talks about church worship and global intercession of mankind for leaders above us. He talks about how the women should conduct themselves. He writes about the church pastorate, especially those elders and deacon qualifications. Fourth, he talks about moral instruction, which arises from the doctrine of creation, and he calls us to personal holiness. He talks about younger leaders having respect and listening to their older leaders. Fifthly, he talks about handling the church's social responsibilities, not only to widows, but to elderly and to the slaves. And finally, he talks about how to handle your money and your material possessions. And so when you look at what uh, Paul talks about, you could say, that could be your scope. Here's what we need to focus on, these six things. But even that is too broad. And so what I'd like to focus on are these first 15 verses. And in these verses, what you see is uh, you see that we're called as a church to defend the truth. And we're called as a church to preach the gospel. And we're called as a church to give glory to God in everything that we do. When you talk about defending the truth of the gospel, that's the first thing that the Apostle Paul writes. Command certain men not to teach false doctrine and you are really if you're honest you're surprised by that because the first thing you'd want to hear I think would be something like 2nd Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12 I believe is to preach the gospel in season and out of season but the Apostle Paul starts with the negative command certain men not to teach this way And the reason was because he understood this congregation. And he understood what dangers were in their midst. You might not remember that the Apostle Paul spent two years in Ephesus preaching the gospel. And during those years, uh, he got to know everybody quite well. When he came back through, he didn't stop in Ephesus. He called them to come to him. And he, he called these elders of Ephesus together And he told them that there would be false teachers arising from your very midst. There'll be wolves among the flock of God. So the Apostle Paul knows that there'll be, and there are, false teachers in the midst of him. He knows the problem. And he goes on, if you read the rest of the chapter, he names two by by name and not very kindly. But you begin to think, what were they teaching? We won't go into everything, but they were teaching myths and genealogy. Uh, Did you know uh, myths, and you think of myths, you think of uh, pagan myths, mythology, 
And you think about there were in the city of Ephesus where you had Artemis being worshipped and she was a queen of all uh, goddesses. And you would think he's talking about pagan myths, but he's talking about Jewish myths. There's a book called the Book of Jubilee and also there's another book of biblical uh, antiquity as of Philo. And these books are written uh, and they contain hundreds of examples of myths that uh, Jewish writers had just made up. For example, you didn't know that Adam had two wives. In uh, Genesis chapter 1, it mentions God made man and woman, doesn't give a name, and so they want to give a name, so they get Lydith. And she becomes Adam's first wife, and they have difficulties, and so you have Eve becoming his second wife in Genesis chapter 2. Absolutely no grammatical, historical, theological reason to do that. But that's the way they did. They had hundreds of these genealogies. You can go through genealogies and you can go through the begats and it tells you how long they lived. And when the Schofield Bible was written, some of you might have realized and seen this, when the Schofield Bible was written, they calculated all the different genealogies and all the ages and they figured out that Genesis, going by the genealogies and the ages, the world was created in 4004 B.C. They put a date on it. The only problem is genealogies aren't accurate. Uh, genealogies aren't complete. They actually have evidence that they skipped some generations, some names, because of uh, they're not popular, they're not famous, or they're infamous. And you don't want them to be in your family tree. You don't want to nod in that tree. So, uh, but what was happening is the Jewish writers and rabbis were adding into those gaps these fanciful figures, and they were making them sound kind of like superheroes and had all kind of different kind of uh, attributes to them, just speculation and caused controversy. They didn't advance the work of God, and we are to be about advancing the work of God. When Wilson was moderator of the General Assembly, uh, Wilson had a great idea, and he implemented one of the first things he did was he said, every committee is going to make a report. And before you make your report, I want you to relate and connect your report to the establishment of the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them all I've told you to do even to the end of the age and lo I'll be with you so you have to realize that everything that we do is to advance the work of God another thing that they did was they misused the law it says that they wanted to teach but they were ignorant uh, you know maybe you've never had an ignorant teacher they're not really good to have but Apostle Paul calls them out as they don't know what they're talking about. We don't know whether they are antinomian, which meant that they uh, threw the law out and you live by grace, or whether they're legalists, that you had to earn your salvation as grace plus work. We don't know what it was. But the Apostle Paul is saying, okay, you got people here teaching myths, genealogy, speculation. They're causing controversy. They're misusing the law. And we pause and ask this question, what are our false doctrines today. Ligon Duncan said he went to a, a speaker of another denomination 
that had a good reputation and uh, he sat by a guy before the talk uh, started. The guy, Ligon, said, I'm looking forward to hearing this guy. And Ligon said, I, I, yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing this guy. And the guy said, well, this is a guy that'll draw a cow and say, this is a cow, but he'll draw a horse and not say, this is not a cow. Ligon said, what is he talking about? What he was saying, the guy always talked about the truth, but he never said it in opposition to falsehood. You know, there's dangerous doctrines out there. You know, we not only have to teach justification by faith, but we have to say you can't save yourself by works. We not only have to say that there's a priesthood of all believers, but that we don't need priests. We, we have to say that to, to God be the glory, but also have to say that man is an idol factory and he wants to receive the glory as well. We have to teach truth in the context of falsehood. Most of the doctrine of the church, you look at the doctrine of Christ, it was hammered out in opposition to heresy. I got to thinking in my brief time of uh, studying the gospel, looking back from seminary to now, when I got to seminary, I got in seminary in the middle of the year, which was terrible. Everybody else had learned the 50-cent words, you know, the big, the big vocabulary, you know, the, the, the language that I just said, wait a second, you know, talk English for a little bit. But the big thing when I got there was uh, liberation theology. And I believe our professor was invited to leave because he taught liberation theology. Liberation theology teaches something like what we have today. You have an oppressor and the oppressed. And the people in charge are always bad, and the people that aren't in charge are always good. And so what you teach is the gospel becomes a, a liberation of, of political power in third world countries, basically. And then the other thing was theonomy, where you wanted to apply the law of God to uh, our civil law in which we know that the law of God is, the moral law is intact, but the civil and the ceremonial law has been fulfilled in Christ. And then when I got out of seminary and began to be on the credentials committee, which Ben is on now, the new, the new heresy was new perspective. And new perspective is something we still in our presbytery, although people don't espouse to it like they did, in our presbytery, you have to sign a statement that you don't believe the nine affirmations of the new perspective. And you say, what is the new perspective? It's N.T. Wright came up with an idea that he had a new idea about justification by faith. And that the reformers, Luther and Calvin, misunderstood justification. That there really was no need to have the Reformation. So I don't need to say more that it was a new perspective, but it was old heresy. And then you go, what about today? Well, there are all sorts of things that we could be caught up in today. Liberalism, social progressive theology, politics, all kinds of things. But our job is to preach the gospel. I, I was thinking about, I mentioned this morning about uh, receiving a phone call from Yazoo City years ago on their pulpit committee and Sarah's response was, please don't take me to Yazoo City. But anyway, I can remember that uh, 
I got a call from a church in North Carolina. And uh, they're just, you know, they're calling everybody they get a name of, you know, and so you, you don't make much of it. And But somehow I made it to this interview. And on this interview, I don't remember anything they asked me, but they asked me, you know, this is tobacco company, a country we, we grow and raise and harvest a lot of tobacco. How would you preach on tobacco? Never been asked that question. But I think I said something like this, and I didn't get another interview. Kind of like I do fried chicken. Too much of it's bad for you, you know. <laughs> and uh, they didn't appreciate that. But anyway, I thought, okay, why would you ask that question? You know, is, is that the... Uh, but in their culture, maybe it was. So what are we called to do to preach the gospel? That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And I'm the worst among the sinners. But the second thing we ought to do, we ought to preach the gospel of grace. And God's grace, God's glorious grace, God's amazing grace, God's saving grace, sanctifying grace, God's persevering grace, God's holy grace. And this grace is seen in the passage where Paul was giving his testimony, his brief testimony. And he talked about how he was a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church, and a violent man, but God showed him mercy. And the grace of God was poured out abundantly, along with faith and love on the Apostle Paul. His testimony was brief. He gives it several times in the New Testament, but it's brief here. He's just a blasphemer. Uh, he spoke blasphemy against God. He tried to get others to blaspheme. He was a persecutor to the church when he was a Pharisee. He thought he was doing God's service by dragging these people off to persecution. And he approved of the stoning of Stephen. And when he talked about being a violent man, that Greek word there is a real strong word, talking about a violent man who does not care about the rights of others. But he says, God, grace, and mercy was poured out super abundantly on me. The word there is, is a compound word. It wasn't just poured out on me. It was poured out super abundantly on me. That it took more grace than normal is kind of the idea. It took more grace than it did for other people maybe was the idea. But what he's saying is there had to be grace that was greater than my sin. And what Paul is urging Timothy to do is to teach people about the grace of God. That this is a trustworthy statement. That Jesus came into the world to save sinners and he saves them by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. And Paul understood that it was all of grace. He didn't figure it out. He didn't study it and I have an aha moment. He didn't go to a service where Christians were, were gathering and walk the aisle or sign a card or raise his hand. That God actually blinded him with his brilliant glory and he had to have the scales of his eyes removed. It was all God's grace. And Paul knew it. A young preacher was being examined by a Presbyterian, probably a liberal Presbyterian, and he gave his testimony that God had saved him and God had led him to a friend and God had moved his friend to give him a book and God had opened his heart and God had changed his mind and God had done this. And finally, after he's finished, the moderator says, you've mentioned what God has done in your life. What did you do? He said, oh yeah, I ran. And God ran after me. 
the hound of heaven pursued him. And that's what we do. I mean, we were, we were all found by God's grace. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin, is what Paul was talking about. He was the chief of sinners, King James. He was the worst of sinners. It's not that he calculated in his mind and he went back through the Bible and he, and he thought about, you know, I'm speculating, so I'm doing... It wasn't, I think, that he went through the whole Bible and he came to the conclusion, nobody's worse than me. But I think he does what we all do, is when we focus on our sin and the depth of our sin, we realize, can there be a sinner worse than me? That's Paul's thinking. Can there be anybody worse than me that in the name of religion persecuted the church and killed Christians and all of that? And he realized that what God had done, he'd saved him to be a grace, an example of grace to others. That if God could save Paul, that he could save anybody. That nobody should despair. That God could be patient. There's a character that I really like in uh, English history. His name is Thomas Bilney. He's called Little Bilney. And he's called Little Bilney because he's little. He's a little bitty guy. They didn't give me, they didn't, I didn't find his height. I didn't want to, but he's probably shorter than me. But anyway, and uh, Bilney, Little Bilney, was converted by reading 1 Timothy 1.12. He, he was converted by reading, this is a trustworthy statement that finds full acceptance that God, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He says this, this one sentence, through God's instruction and inward working, which I did not then perceive, did so exhilarate my heart, being before wounded with the guilt of my sins and being almost in despair, that I immediately... I immediately felt a marvelous comfort and quietness insomuch as my bruised bones leaped for joy. That one verse changed his life. He was a little man with a great big impact. He impacted Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer was also another famous person in English history. But Bilding became a, a pastor, and once he became a pastor, he started preaching. They were talking about in the 1600s, late 1500s. He started preaching the doctrines of, uh, of grace, the doctrines that Luther had started the Reformation with, and he was having great success, but his bishop was not very pleased. So his bishop told him to quit preaching the doctrines of Luther. But he didn't repent of preaching the doctrines of Luther, and so he was actually physically dragged out of the pulpit and put into the tower as a prison, and he stayed there a year, and they tried to get him to recant with threatening his life, and Bilney, little Bilney, recanted. He took it all back, and he got out, and he realized what a mistake he had made, and filled with despair and guilt and shame, he repented, and he found out something, that grace is not only for the unconverted, but grace is for the converted who do terrible things. He believed the grace of God could forgive him for what he did when he recanted. And he began to preach more boldly. But he couldn't find churches to, to 
preaching, people weren't as forgiving as God was. He preached out in the fields, out in the open, and therefore he handed out Bibles. He was arrested, and this time he didn't give up the faith. He persevered to the very end. He was burned at the stake. And one man watching him says, I feel like I have burned Abel and let Cain go, meaning he's burned the wrong guy. Amazing grace. The last thing, and briefly, is we're to give glory to God in the church. He ends this section that I ended in, now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, the be honor, glory forever and ever. Amen. And what Paul is doing is he's saying that all the praise belongs to me. It belongs to God and not to me. It's not me, mine, it's not what I did, it's God. It's God's work that's to be praised. It's God's name that's to be honored. And what he does, every, every attribute he mentions there is in stark contrast to Artemis. Artemis was a Greek goddess. She was really the, the queen of all the goddesses. And so what he's doing, he's drawing a, a contrast between God and Artemis. And he says this, he this, this says, the contrast between God and the goddess could not be more absolute. God is king. Artemis is a queen. He is immortal. She proved to be mortal. He is invisible. She was a statue. He is unique. She was mass produced. While he will be honored and glorified forever, her praise and worship have now ceased. What is the aim of the Christian? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. What is the aim of the church? to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So maybe if I had planned a little better, we'd have sung a different song to close with. But this hymn is one that others use and I think is appropriate to quote in our ending. Praise my soul, the King of heaven, to His feet your tribute bring, ransom, healed, restored, forgiven, who like me His praise should sing. Praise Him, praise Him, praise Him, praise Him. Praise the everlasting King. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the Gospel. Help us as a church to be faithful to defend the truth as well as proclaim the truth. Help us to be amazed and see the amazing grace of God working in our community of faith. And may we give You glory forever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.